0: I want to begin today by saying one is we have a lot to get to. This has been a week of uh, challenging for me in terms of discerning the message and uh, bringing God's word here to us and not just reading it, proclaiming it as well. So we have a lot to get to, so you're going to have to listen quickly, okay? It's all up to you this morning. So, So ride with me here. I want to start out by saying, and we've said this before, all are welcome in God's church all are welcome. And I think it's important to say that because we belong to a world, we live in a world where that is not the case. We live in a world that loves to divide. We have all kinds of ways. We we are divided up. There is division. There are categories. There are labels. And I will tell you today, it does not matter your race, your age, your ethnicity, your income level, your education level, the number of languages you speak, the place you were raised, the side of town you live on. there are so many ways the world divides us. None of that matters. You are welcome in the house of the Lord. I, I remember I'll, I'll tell this story briefly, uh, where I grew up, I grew up in, in Georgia, and uh, I'll, I'll never forget in, in first grade, um, the Georgia public school system. let me, let me tell you, it is. Top 50 in the, in the nation in terms of uh, states of, of the Georgia public school system. But it, it, in the first grade, they put us into three reading groups. They came and did an assessment, and then we were placed into three reading groups. There were the Jets, and the Rabbits, and the Turtles. And you might pick up on exactly how we were sorted. <laughs> and even as first graders, we knew, okay, wait a minute. There's a speed thing going on here, and we know the jets are good, and those rabbits, they're, they're pretty good too, but the turtles, you don't really want to be a turtle. And even as first graders, oh, they're, they're a turtle. We were learning, we were taught how to divide, how to place labels on others. And in Georgia, they would say, oh, bless your heart, <laughs> you know. That's, that's the Georgia public school system that, that, that's the way they did and I'm sure they're better now but back when I was there I mean they taught the Civil War we didn't lose we came in second it's, you know but, but and, and I'm thankful most of the school systems these days have moved on from just slapping a label on a kid and now that's your identity that's who you are but I will say here jets, rabbits, turtles you are all welcome in the house of the Lord I'm glad you're here today so don't let anybody put a label on you that would tell you you are disqualified from coming into the church, from being a part of what's going on here. And so with that, we have the gospel of Mark, and Jesus has entered Jerusalem triumphantly. He has gone into the, to the temple, and he has disrupted some things that he was not pleased with. There was a fig tree that became the, the, the target of his frustration. And in Mark chapter 11, we pick up now where Jesus, he had left Jerusalem. Now he's coming back. And so in Mark chapter 11, we're going to start with verse 27 today. And hear the word of the Lord. Jesus and his disciples entered Jerusalem again. As Jesus was walking around the temple, the chief priests, legal experts, and the elders came to him. They asked, what kind of authority do you have for doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I have a question for you. Give me an answer, then I'll tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Was John's baptism of heavenly or human origin? Answer me. They argued among themselves, if we say it's of heavenly origin, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But we can't say it's of earthly origin. They said this because they were afraid of the crowd, because they all thought John was a prophet. They answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus replied, neither will I tell you what kind of authority I have to do these things. Funny little story that's included in here by Mark. The authority of Jesus is called into question. It is interesting, first, that the religious leaders here did not deny that Jesus had authority. They did not deny the power that they had seen right in front of them. Jesus had healed. He had done miracles. He had done teachings and um, cleared the temple. He was acting under some type of power, some type of authority, but who was it? Who was he working for? What gives him the right? Who sent him? And I wonder if they're thinking, is it, is it in the name of the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Essenes or the Zealots, all these different sects of religion, of, of the religious leaders in those days? Is this the work of Rome in the Roman Empire? Is this a representative of the region of Galilee to the north? What? What is Jesus coming to do? If you were to show up in Washington, D.C. this week and began say performing miracles or giving strong speeches or your face was on every billboard or loud, large crowds were coming in to follow you and proclaiming certain things that was being proclaimed of Jesus. If that was to happen in Washington, D.C., do you know what would happen? The establishment would come, well, they would send their interns and they would send their people, their teams, to come out and say, hey, who are you with? Are you liberal or conservative? Are you... Democrat or, Le- or Republican? Are you American or Russian or Western or Asian or what, what, a, what, a, what a capitalism or socialism? All, all these, all these who, who are you with? Under whose power or authority are you with? The powers that be would be very interested in knowing someone of popularity. Who, who are you with here? Are you for us or against us? What role are you trying to play here? The religious leaders come to Jesus. Okay, you're making some noise now. We hear you. You have our attention now. Tell us, Jesus, what's your deal? What kind of authority do you have? What who whose authority do you have? And I think implied here is the question, um, Jesus, we're the ones who have authority as the religious leaders. We're the ones in charge of the temple, and we are definitely not giving you authority to do this. So how are you going about teaching and disrupting and healing and miracles and making proclamations like you own this temple? And the religious leaders, we can see, did nothing without first calculating the consequences or benefits. And there's maybe some wisdom here, but also maybe some signs of enslavement to an agenda. Jesus did not fit in how they thought things should go. Jesus could not be controlled in ways that they wanted to maintain control, for control is a zero-sum game. Either you have it, or if you give it up, someone else has it. So who's in charge? Who's doing the funding? Who is calling the shots behind the scenes when Jesus is doing this? It is, it is such a temptation in our world today. But I can tell you, there is no agenda That can surpass the authority of Jesus Christ. And do you know what the success of the kingdom of God is dependent on? It is dependent on solely the power and authority of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of the world. So Mark, he's been presenting this question all throughout this gospel, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And we hear from people, we hear from demons, we hear from Mother Nature, the the storms, we hear from all the... Who Jesus is. He has authority, he has power, And here, Jesus is asked directly, and Jesus actually doesn't answer. It's very interesting. And why not? I think because it was not an earnest, honest, seeking question. It was a question perhaps to trap Jesus. What does it mean for Jesus to have authority in your life, in my life? I think there's three things. Jesus is present in your life, right? So we see him at work. When he's present, we see him at work. Jesus is recognized in our lives. So even when I don't see him working, I believe he is there. I believe he is working. So there's Jesus' presence, and we have the recognition of him in our life. But the question is, does Jesus have authority in your life? That you follow him in his work. And there is a difference between The presence of Jesus, like Jesus is around, and that's evident. And recognizing Jesus or saying, I believe that Jesus exists, that he's right there. Those two things. But then you have, is he in authority? Here's the difference. James says it this way. It's good that you believe that God is one. Ha, even the demons believe this, and they tremble with fear. Demons acknowledge the presence of Jesus working. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, they do. Demons recognize Jesus is alive and at work, but the demons operate as if they are their own authority, that Jesus is not the authority. So what does it mean to have Jesus in authority over my life, over your life? Well, Wayne Wayne read the scripture last week, and I want to read it again. It's considered the mission of God's church. We call it the Great Commission. And we're fast-forwarding a bit here in the story, and uh, we're using Matthew's gospel instead of Mark's, but same Jesus, okay? This is after Jesus is arrested, tortured, crucified, died for our sins, for your sins, for my sins, and defeats death, overcomes the grave. He is resurrected and what does he say to his disciples after all this? He says, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. You've heard this before. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. That right there, you see that right before you, that is the anthem, the mission of God's church. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey. It is so important. It is so nice. We hammer that home. We say, we've got to go. We've got to make disciples. That's so important. But as great as Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is, you cannot have Matthew 28, 19 without Matthew 28, 18. Right? There's an order there, a context So let's back up one more verse. Do you know what Jesus says before giving his followers the great commission, the mission of the church? Here's what he says. Jesus came near and spoke to them. I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples. Baptize. Teach them to obey. It is we receive our mission only from the one who has authority to give the mission. It's Jesus Christ. He has received that authority. And if we allow Jesus to have authority in our lives, what does that mean? It means we will participate in those three things. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples, not converts. I mean, we we want people to be converted. But this is far more than come to the altar, pray a prayer, and, and, and then go on about your day. Could you imagine if my daughter, who just recently started kindergarten, if she showed up on the first day of school, sat down at her desk and told her teacher, I am in need of teaching. And I need a teacher. And I submit to you for this entire school year, teach me. Show me the way. And then she went home and she never came back. It's similar to the difference between a convert who says it, who prays it, who says it, and a disciple who comes back day after day after day and submits to the teacher. Go and make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that's important there because who are we making disciples of? Who are we, what are we discipling them? We can, you, there are all kinds of disciples out in our world today. There are, there are disciples of political parties. There are disciples of sports leagues. There are disciples of uh, economic systems. There are, all, there are disciples of radio, radio shows and uh, cable news channels. There are so many disciples out in our world today. We are called to make disciples of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. That is what they're baptized in. And then teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. So here's the question, how are we doing? How are you doing? Are you a participant in making disciples for Jesus? Are you a participant in seeing people baptized into the family of God? Are you a participant in teaching people to obey Jesus? Can I tell you, let's be real this morning, this sounds nearly impossible to me. Maybe, maybe if you quit your job, went to seminary or Bible college or what, it did, dedicated your entire life only to the study of scripture and figuring out and strategizing, maybe a pastor, maybe me, maybe I could take a stranger, someone who's lost, a non-believer, and then turn them into a disciple and baptize them and get them to change their life and repent in such a dramatic way that they are now living what we would call a holy life. Maybe. Or would you say, I struggle doing that myself, <laughs> let alone trying to get somebody else to do it? How is the typical person supposed to do all that? How in the world is the typical follower of Christ supposed to fulfill this massive great commission? In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul tells what I would say is almost a parable. And we don't have time to go back and look at that entire chapter, but go read 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's so good. Paul says, essentially, imagine if there was a seed, not yet, not yet, imagine if there was a seed, (laughs) and a farmer came along and prepared the ground. He tilled the ground, he he removed the rocks and the things that were in the way, and prepared the soil for the seed. And then another farmer came along and planted the seed, covered it up in the good soil. And then what if another farmer came along and provided water and watered the seed? And then another came along and provided the nutrients, the fertilizer. And then another came along and began picking weeds. And then another came along and and cleared out the the canopy and the, the things that were blocking the sun and allowed the sun to come down on this new plant. Farmer after farmer after farmer comes along and each plays a role And the seed grows into a little sapling, but then continues to grow and has great big leaves and deep roots and wide branches. Now who who gets the credit for making that seed grow? Well, it could not have happened without the contributions of every single farmer in their own special way, in their specific timing, along the, along the way. And church family, so it is with us. The only way we can possibly fulfill the mission that has been given to you and to me by the only one who has true authority is to unite with your fellow body of believers and cultivate seeds that are planted, breaking through the soil and desperately in need of nurturing growth. And Paul concludes his parable this way. The one who plants and the one who waters work together, but each one will receive their reward for their own labor. We are God's co-workers, and you are God's field, God's building. So go and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, Jesus says. And in that context of the church, of the body of believers, we can do this together. I'd like to stop right there. Because <laughs> um, right there, that's an encouraging message. I, it's it's, it's kind of challenging. There's some self-assessment there, but boy, I I think it's an uplifting message. It's teamwork. We can do this together. We can fulfill the mission of God when we all contribute. Oh, it's a great message. But if I can push us just one step more this week and I'll be honest with you, I'm hesitant. I've been hesitant all week to go this far because I might lose some of you. I'm not sure, I hope not, but I feel like there is one more point that must be made, and if I'm wrong, be gracious with me. But this is where it gets challenging. I am convinced that we are not followers of a dead religion, okay? I'm convinced we are not followers of a dead religion. There are dead religions out there, There are religions that were practiced for hundreds or even thousands of years, and they have died off. The followers died off. The disciples died off. Essentially, really, because the God was a false God, had no power to continue in that faith. But I firmly, completely, undeniably believe we do not follow a dead religion. So what does that mean? It means God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are still alive, Active and at work today. And if that is the case, and I believe it is, we as followers of God, who is alive and active and at work today, we must not treat him as if he has done nothing for 2,000 years. And what does it mean to treat God as if he has done nothing for 2,000 years? It looks like this. Oh, this is my Bible, right? This is all I need. Everything God has said and ever will say is right here, in black and white. Well, there's some red ones, too, that we should pay attention to. And that's it, and nothing else matters. It's only in here. And if you believe that, your God is dead. And your God has done nothing for 2,000 years. And that's it. You're a follower of a dead religion. Okay, some of you have stopped breathing, so let me, let me talk a little bit more. Let me address some important points. I am not suggesting that we need another, a volume two, <laughs> that we need to add to this. No. There are those who have suggested that and even have done that, and Scripture is very clear about that. We don't do that. We don't need more Scripture or additional Scripture God does not give us any additional words on paper. He gives us the body of believers, the church. And for the past 2,000 years up until this present moment and beyond into the future, God has raised up wise men and women with pure hearts, holy lives, earnest seekers of the will of God, not perfect people, but people who have surrendered their own will to the will of God and through the guiding of the Holy Spirit These people have gone before us and have received the word of God and put it into practice. Praise the Lord. So if we are to make disciples, baptize them, and teach them how to live lives pleasing to God, we have to get together. We have to talk about what does it mean to live a life pleasing to God in our world today. And the Bible, my favorite book, we read from it every single week. I read from it every single day. This is beautiful and wonderful. It is a gift from God. Okay? I want to be clear about that. But this Bible, it says nothing about the internet. (laughs) It says nothing about, um, I I don't know, gene modification in plants or animals or, or, or humans. It There's a lot in here, but I would say that we we have to take what we learn in here, what is revealed to us from God, what God reveals to us as the church, and then figure out how we are to live our lives holy and pleasing to the Lord. In the Church of the Nazarene, we're blessed to have what's called a manual, the manual of the Church of the Nazarene. It is not Scripture. There's a lot of Scripture in there referenced as decisions are being made and, and things are being written down. Every single one has a, has a backing in, in Scripture. But it is filled with these references to Scripture as part of its creation and development over the years. It is founded on what is taught in Scripture. And some of the pages, I will be honest with you, are dry or maybe even feel not relevant. Some of the pages of the manual of the Church of the Nazarene uh, give detailed descriptions on how you are to buy and sell property as a church. And actually, we use those this summer because we, we did some of that. I would not recommend those portions for your daily devotional, okay? It's kind of dry. That's not, not, the, not the intent of it. But right up front, we have what are called the articles of faith. There are 16 of them. And these are doctrinal statements about essential parts of the faith that we do not compromise on. The first one we explained to our kids today, and our kids have been through this, the triune God. God is one. We worship one God revealed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is not unique to the Church of the Nazarene, thankfully. That is a big tent statement, but it is an essential statement. And if you do not believe that, you find yourself on the outside of our beliefs. But we go on. The life and death and resurrection of Jesus is in our essential statements, our articles of faith. The importance of Scripture, the holiness of Scripture, God's saving grace and sanctifying grace. And I don't have time to go over all of them today, but there is no section more important than the 16 articles of faith in the Church of the Nazarene's manual. Even if you do not know them all that well or even at all, I would say to you that almost every follower of Christ would be hard-pressed to find something they are adamantly against in our articles of faith. These are not all that controversial. How did we get them? Over the course of several years, leaders have been elected from local congregations on a district level in the state of Kansas for us, and then they all meet at what's called a general assembly. It happened earlier this year in in the summer. And not only do we vote, but we argue and we wrestle and we agree and disagree and discuss what are the essential beliefs The statement that often comes up is unity in essentials, freedom in non-essentials, but in all things, charity or love. That if it's not an essential, we can agree to disagree. That's okay. But on some essential things, hmm, we need to get these right. We need to get these right. And if you go a little further into the manual, there are two other sections. These sections are not given the attention or same importance as Scripture or as the articles of faith, and nor should they. And in fact, you might be hearing of the first time, and I'm your pastor for five years, and shame on me. (laughs) But at the same time, I'm focused on this. I'm focused on our essential articles of faith. But I do believe That these two sections, the covenant of Christian character and the covenant of Christian conduct, are uniquely inspired to deal with how we as Christians should live in our world today. Where the Bible is not specifically clear. Where our articles of faith, which are essentials, don't specifically deal with them. And so we have things like, again, stem cell research or gene modification or abortion or gambling or sexuality or drinking this or smoking that or all those things that, again, have made you stop breathing a little bit when the pastor starts to talk about it from the pulpit. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go through the list today (laughs) because we have essentials, and those are important. And I believe firmly there is a place for the covenant of Christian character and the covenant of Christian conduct. The do's and don'ts of following Jesus in 2023, I suppose you could describe it. But that's not what I'm going to list out today, and why not? I said it in the beginning of this message, I'll say it again, everybody is welcome in the house of the Lord. And whether you have been a Christian for a hundred years, or this is day one of your journey as a follower of Jesus, or maybe you have not even decided yet if you're going to follow Jesus, keep coming. You're welcome here. Keep coming back. No matter where you are on your journey, this is a safe place where you can come and you can encounter Jesus for the hundredth year in a row or for the very first time. This is a safe place for you. Now, Jesus might change you. He might convict you. The Holy Spirit may begin to work on you, and you better be obedient to that. But that's between you and God. And also, if I were to get up here today and begin to tell you what you can and cannot do with your life, what would that response be like? <laughs> Some may say, Oh, man, pastor, I respect you. I thank you for, for speaking truth. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get right here. I wonder if others would say, how dare you try to tell me what I can and cannot do with my life? We live in a world where we value independence and freedom over anything else. And I will determine how I can worship God and live my life. I'll decide that for myself. And I, I suppose in our world today that's fair. But that's also the same question that was asked in Mark chapter 11, verses 28. Jesus, what kind of authority do you have? Who gave you this authority? And me, I don't have any authority over you. I don't want to have any authority over you. I want Jesus to have authority in your life. And if Jesus is our king, if he is our authority, if he is not dead but still active and alive and at work and is speaking to his church and revealing truth and showing us the way forward in a dark and messed up world, me, personally, I'm going to submit to that. I'm going to lay down my right as an individual and submit to Jesus Christ and his church. Now, I'm going to stop and say right here, there are times when the church has gotten it wrong. There are times when, especially individual leaders have not only gotten it wrong, but acted in ways of corruption or abuse, or I'll say it, evil. And they are leaders within the church. Not our church, the church in general. Maybe our church. And in those times, I would say those are more the exception than the rule. I know they are. In those times, that is the epitome of evil. We would call it anti-Christ to represent Christ in ways anti, against what he has taught. But the purpose and the role of God's church is for us to go and make disciples, to baptize in his name, and to teach to obey. And in teaching to obey, we must discern how do we live our lives in 2023 pleasing to the Lord. And I will tell you, church family, I'm one testimony among many. But when I follow the teachings of Jesus, the way of holiness, when I strive to live into a covenant of Christian character and conduct, my life is so much better off than if I were to try to do it on my own. There will be times later this year in which I'm going to invite you To come and encounter our articles of faith, a covenant of Christian conduct, and a covenant of Christian character. I'm not going to do it right now, but I want you to be open to that and consider what does it look like for us to dare to take the step to say Jesus Christ is in authority over my life. Let me leave you with this. From the book of Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't rely on your own intelligence, it might be playing in your head, lean not on your own understanding, but know him in all your paths and he will keep your ways straight. Lord, will you help us today? As we receive this difficult word, your strength is perfect when our strength is gone. Your ways are not our ways. Your understanding is not our understanding. Give us the boldness to submit to you, Lord. To seek a holy life and to have the wisdom to find the way forward as you have revealed it to us, your church. Soften our hearts for the ways in which we can submit to you. And this is a journey, Lord. Be patient with us. As we learn, as we grow, as we wrestle, help us to be patient with each other, to love each other, to know what it means to live under your authority which is not then a feeling of shame or embarrassment or judgment or punishment, but is one of grace and forgiveness. And then with your Spirit, may you empower us to be holy, as you are holy, Lord. We leave this at your feet, Lord. Help us today. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. Church Family, would you stand with me? I'm glad to talk to you about any of these things and, and visit with you, and that's one of the favorite things I get to do as a pastor is to visit with you. So my door is open. Uh, I've got an email address in the bulletin, my phone number's out there as well on our website. I'd love to talk with you.